get started today, I want to start with a question. You don't need to answer out loud. You don't need to raise your hand. But the question is, have you ever chosen to not do something because of who else was going to be there? Have you ever chosen? You guys are already saying yes, right? Yeah. Okay. You can answer out loud if you want. Uh, maybe just don't point any fingers. Um, have you ever chosen to not go somewhere or engage with something or to, to participate in something because you didn't want to be around somebody who was also going to be there? That's the question for today, right? Um, maybe it was a family gathering and you thought it'd be fun to see everybody and catch up, but then you realized that one uncle was going to be there and you're like, that dude gets under my skin. Like, I'm not going. Uh, maybe if you're in school, it was a party that you got invited to and you're like, yeah, I want to go. And then you realize, ah, I might run into my ex there, my ex boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, so you're like, nah, I'm not going to go. Uh, maybe it was a group that was going out after work to get a drink or get a bite to eat, and you were thinking that'd be fun to go with them and hang out after work, outside of the work hours, but then you realize like that one coworker who was going, and you're like, I don't want to go, like something came up, oh, I, got, I got a headache, right? Um, I'll tell you, for me, the, maybe the most vivid, uh, remember, most vivid memory I have of doing this, of, of not engaging with something that I otherwise would have because of somebody who was there, uh, would uh, be related to high school basketball. It's kind of random, I know, but let me tell you the story. So when I was growing up, I used to love to play basketball. Like we had a hoop at the end of our driveway and I would go out and I would play basketball. I would shoot like until the, like it was too dark to shoot any longer. You know, my parents would be like, John, you got to come in and eat some dinner. Like the sun set a half an hour ago. Like you can't even see what you're doing, but I just never wanted to go in because I loved playing ball that much. And I used to play a lot with my little brother. My little brother and I would like uh, have these epic two-on-one matchups, right, with me against him and the kid from down the street that was his age. And we would lower the hoop to like eight feet high and I would drive and I would dunk on them constantly. I loved it. It was so fun. And, uh, you know, I'd do it. I'd like just hang in the air with my tongue out as I would like dunk on them which drove my dad nuts because he was always like, John, stop doing that with your tongue. You're going to bite your tongue off, you know? I was like, Dad, listen, man, you can relax. Michael Jordan and I have got this under control, okay? We're okay. So I love to play basketball. And all through school, I played, played growing up, played through elementary school, junior high, got into high school, it's good, freshman year. Then my sophomore year hit, and I played JV mostly my sophomore year. But the junior varsity team practiced with the varsity team, which meant that I had to practice in front of the varsity coach. And that was a bit of an issue for me because the varsity coach was, he was passionate. Um, but not passionate like I'm passionate. Like I get pretty fired up and I'm like, let's go, you know. But this guy was passionate in the sense that he screamed constantly. Like he was always screaming at someone or about something, just all the time, all practice, every game. I mean, somebody didn't box out for a rebound, boom, he's screaming. Somebody makes a bad pass and turns the ball over. Somebody takes a bad shot, right, where they're off balance and they kind of throw it up. Like this dude would just become unhinged and he would start screaming. And as a 15-year-old, that made me so nervous. Like I was so self-conscious as it was that, that it just, like I was panicking anytime I was around this coach. And so every time I'd get the ball, I'd immediately pass it because I just, I thought the longer that I have the ball, the higher the probability is that I do something with it that's going to make him yell at me. And I don't want to get yelled at. So I just would pass the ball as soon as I got it. And so this was a bummer because of how much I loved the game of basketball, how much I loved playing for my school. But when my junior year rolled around, I chose not to go out for the team. I didn't even try out, even though I would have, you know, obviously I 
not obviously, but I knew I would have had a place on the team, but I, didn't, I just didn't go out for a team. I gave basketball up. I didn't play my junior or my senior year. Now, story doesn't end there because this coach was also the senior government teacher, which meant that at some point I was going to have him for government class because all seniors had to take government. So sure enough, junior year goes by, senior year, first semester, second semester, senior year, I've got to take government with this coach. And it turned out in the classroom, like we actually developed a really great relationship. Um, he was super chill in the classroom, which I think had something to do with the fact that he spent most of the class watching game films at his desk. Um, but it also probably had something to do with the fact that I loved the subject matter. You know, at that point in my life, I was thinking I might go to law school. I love government and politics, the founding of our nation. So like I was into the class. And so we developed a really good relationship. And it was the last class of the day. So at the end of the day, as everybody's waiting for the bell, like a lot of times we would just like shoot the breeze and talk about what's ever was going on in sports world. Well, near the very end of the year, I was telling him about my college plans. And at one point he asked me, he just, he just said, Hey John, he's like, I got to ask you something, man. I've always wondered why didn't you play basketball your junior or senior years? And at this point in time, we had gotten close enough that I really didn't hesitate. I was honest with him. And I just said, because you were the coach and <laughs> He kind of, like, I think it caught him by surprise. That's not what he expected to hear. But he said, you know, what do you, what do you mean by that? And so I just was very honest with him. I mean, I wasn't mean, but I just was like, look, your, your yelling was so intimidating to me that, like, I just didn't play. Like, I, I, I just gave it up. And so he, he thought about it for a second, and he goes, man, you loved basketball, right? And I was like, yeah, I loved it. And he goes, you gave up the opportunity to play basketball for your high school, your junior and senior years, because of me and my, my presence on the team? And I said, yeah. And he said, John, he's like, man, first of all, I'm so sorry. But he's like, beyond that, he's like, don't ever give somebody else the power to di dictate what you do when it comes to things that you value. He said, don't let the presence of somebody else determine what you say yes to or what you say no to. If you love it and if it's valuable to you, you got to push past that. You've got to find other ways to get around the problem that you're trying to solve. But don't do it by eliminating something that you love from your life. He's like, it's not worth it. He said, he said they're, they're, you're giving other people too much power. You're giving them too much authority over you and over your life. And then he used this funny phrase. He said, John, as you grow up and as you enter into adulthood, he said, make sure, be careful that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, that's a phrase that we've all kind of heard. It's kind of a funny phrase, right? It's a phrase that when you think about it, this is so random, like who would wash their baby and then in an effort to get rid of the dirty bathwater, actually throw the baby and the water out into the yard, right? Like they just, this little baby just lands in the grass because you're like, well, I got rid of the water, you know? Like clearly a high school male came up with this idiom, right? <laughs> um, but I was curious about where that came from. And so I looked it up and it's actually a German idiom. It was first documented. The first publication we have of this phrase uh, comes from a, a publication in Germany in 1512. But the phrase basically means this. It means in your attempt to get rid of something that is not wanted, in this case, the bathwater, be careful that you don't inadvertently eliminate something that is valuable, the baby, right? In your attempt to get rid of something that is not wanted, 
Be careful that you don't also eliminate something valuable in the process. This is an important life truth. It's going to come back to play in what we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But first, let me back up a week for anybody who wasn't here last Sunday. Last Sunday, we kicked off this new series that we're calling Deconstructing Together. The word deconstructing in our culture today is sort of a buzzword. It's really popular online. It's trending on a lot of different social media platforms. But one of the things that's interesting about the deconstruction movement is that different people define it slightly differently, or they mean different things when they say it. And so for the purposes of this five-week series, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, this is how we're defining deconstruction, okay? So maybe you've thought of it in other terms, but for the purpose of our, ser- our series, this is how we're defining it. Deconstruction is the process of breaking Christianity down into individual beliefs in order to examine each belief's foundation, truthfulness, and impact. To put it more simply, deconstructing is simply re-examining a belief. And so when it comes to the Christian faith, a lot of people are asking, what is it that I believe? Like, here are the beliefs that have been handed to me, but what's the foundation of those beliefs? Where do those beliefs come from? What, how do I know that those beliefs are true or useful? What's the impact? What's the domino effect of believing those things? And do I still believe that thing to be true? Now, it's important to know that deconstruction in and of itself is not a bad thing. The goal, the overarching goal, if you think of deconstruction in a vacuum, the goal is not deconversion. The goal really would be re, uh, reconstruction, right? The goal would be that somebody examines their faith, they examine a belief, then they, as they look into it and investigate it, they understand even more uh, accurately and even more deeply where it comes from, probably in Scripture, right? Where it comes from in Scripture, why God gives us that belief, why that has been taught by the church over the generations. And then they come out the other side with a reconstructed belief that they're able to hold on to even more firmly in the face of everything that life throws at them, right? That's the goal. That's the overarching goal of deconstruction. But it is important to acknowledge that, yes, there are people who are going through the deconstruction process, asking these questions about their faith, and then ultimately walking away from their faith, leaving their faith behind. And as I've kind of dug into this, I think the vast majority of them are walking away from their faith unnecessarily, but it really is the same handful of questions that rise to the surface that are causing people to deconstruct and ultimately to deconvert. One of the questions, or really each week for the next four weeks, we're going to look at one of those questions, but the question that we're going to talk about today, the question that we're going to ask with with kind of an open mind and an open heart today is simply this. What about all the hypocrites, politics, and moral failures in the church. Sounds like a good one, huh? What about all the hypocrites, politics, and moral failures in the church? Now, before I go any further, everybody just take a deep breath and relax when about the politics, okay? I'm not going to tell you how to vote, right? Every, anytime I talk about politics, I think people are afraid I'm going to like promote one side or something. I'm not. Nothing's going to get weird with politics, okay? So just relax, um, but, but stay with me. The complaint is that there, are, there is a large number of people, especially young people who grew up in the church, who would say, when I think about my Christian faith, I have a hard time not getting distracted by all of the hypocrites, by all of the politics, and by all of the high-profile moral failures of Christian leaders around the country today. 
That's the overarching complaint. That's the overarching frustration, right? But that's kind of the sentence summary. That's the 30,000-foot view of it. I want us today, if we're going to actually get after this with any real integrity, I think we need to dig a little deeper. So let's break those down one at a time. Start with hypocrites. We all know what a hypocrite is, right? A hypocrite is somebody who promotes or, or um, affirms a set of standards, right? Like a moral standard, or they promote some bar, but then they fail to live up to that standard themselves. With me? We have hypocrites in every arena of society. This is just the reality of life, right? The hypocrite is the doctor who tells their clients that they should make healthy life choices, but then when they go home, they smoke a lot of cigarettes, right? Um, it's the business manager who tells his employees they need to work really hard, show up early, stay late, and yet they spend as much time as they possibly can on the golf course, okay? Um, I almost used pastor there instead of business manager, but I was like, no, let's keep it business manager. Um, it is, is I'm preaching to myself here. Um, it's the fitness trainer who tells their clients that they should avoid processed sugar, but they drink copious amounts of, of soft drinks, of soda, right? So there are hypocrites in every arena of society, and yet a lot of people would say, but it seems like there's an overabundance of them in the church, which is hard to accept if you're part of the church, right? But I think we can begin by acknowledging like, yeah, that, that might be true because it's pretty rare in society that you would have a group this large that so clearly promotes and elevates a standard of moral behavior, right? Like that's part of what we do is we, we promote, we elevate, we, we, we affirm this high moral bar. And so, of course, as people are at all walks of life in their faith journey, of course, people are going to live according to that standard to varying degrees, some closer than others. But one of the things that is really hard, I think, for people about hypocrites is that there's a special type of annoyance for hypocrites, right? It's one thing to, to, to smoke cigarettes, but it's another thing if you like spend all day telling other people not to do it and you do it right? It's one thing to, to maybe not be a great person, to not be very compassionate, to be kind of judgmental or condescending. Fine, whatever. You can be like that, but don't act like your mother Teresa, right? At least acknowledge who you really are because we see the real you. And so when it comes to our faith, this is part of the challenge because people who claim to follow Jesus, but whose actions and lifestyle does not reflect him, they're one of the major reasons that people are walking away from Jesus and his church today. Politics. Um, as I said, everybody just, okay, relax. But here's the deal. A couple of years ago, Barna, the Barna Group, did a large-scale survey where they polled 18 to 30-year-olds who would identify themselves as non-Christian, okay? So this is kind of the next generation, young adults who do not identify themselves as Christians. And the question they asked this group was, what's your perception of people who are Christians? What's your perception of people who do claim to be a Christian? And one of the interesting findings was that 75% of them, 75% of the people surveyed said, Christians are too political. Three out of four non-Christian young adults said Christians are too 
political. Now, again, I am not saying Christians as a group are too political. I think it's just good information for us to have, that, that the perception by many in society is that Christians care more about winning elections than we care about the causes that were near and dear to Jesus's heart, okay? Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You can vote for, for whoever you want to vote for. Like, there will be both Republicans and Democrats in heaven someday, okay? I know that's difficult for some of you to believe, but you're like, you're going to get there, and you go, oh, wow, there's the other side of the aisle. They did make it. I had my doubts, you know? Um, but they'll both be there, okay? But the, if the goal, if the goal is to go and make disciples the way that Jesus said his followers' goal should be in Matthew 28, then I think it's at least worth acknowledging. It's at least good, helpful information to have that many in society would look at Christians as a whole and say, as a whole, they are too political. Hypocrites, politics, moral failures. Now, when it comes to moral failures of high-profile Christian leaders, I'm not going to name any names. I don't think I have to because you read the same news that I read. feels like there is a pretty healthy, pretty steady stream of high-profile Christian leaders who have blown up their lives and their ministries, right? People who have built a national platform, who have built a name for themselves, people who have sold books and who do speaking tours and speaking engagements and, and who have huge followings online, who, who bang their own drum and say, hey, 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 everybody, look at me. I'm a Christian and, and, and I have something to say that's worth listening to. You can follow me. And then it comes out that their spouse is leaving them because they've been having an affair behind the scenes or they've been embezzling millions of dollars from the ministry they lead, or it comes out that they're just actually awful to work for, that they're vindictive, that they're belittling, that they're demeaning, that they're a toxic leader, that they're actually an awful people when the camera is turned off. I don't think I have to make this argument for anybody, but these high-profile Christian leaders, when it comes out that they have these epic moral failures, like... This does not help build the church at all, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Taken as a whole, hypocrites, all the politics, and the moral failures combine to create this perception from outsiders towards people who carry the banner of Jesus, who carry the name Christian. As I was living in this deconstruction world for the last year or so, I came across something that one person who is deconstructing said that I thought summarized this argument really well, or it summarized this frustration really well. This person who is deconstructing simply said this, why would I ever want anyone to think I'm a Christian? Christians are jerks. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and a Christian, Aren't you so glad you came to church today? <laughs> so here, this is what some people think of you. No. Now, let me ask a question. Think about this for a second. Think about these three groups, hypocrites, politics, moral failures. What's the common denominator? You don't have to answer out loud, but just think for a second. What do these have in common? What's, the, what's at the core issue when somebody looks at the church as a whole and they see the politics and the hypocrites and the moral failures, what, what's their real question that they're actually asking when they say, what about the hypocrites? What about 
the moral failures of your leaders. What are they getting at? I think, I'll tell you what I think. I think at the core of all these things, I think people are asking themselves, and the thing that they're questioning is, does it actually work? They want to know, does following Jesus actually make any difference? Because if the people who claim to be Christians aren't able to live it out, and if your, your leaders aren't able to live it out, does it actually work? They, they, they would think to themselves, if it doesn't work, I don't want to waste my time with it. I don't want to be a Christian if it doesn't actually matter, if it doesn't actually change anything. Why would I want to give up my Sunday mornings when there are other things that I would love to do with a, like half of my weekend Sunday? Why would I want to start giving my money away when there are so many other ways that I could use my money? Why would I want to volunteer my time? Why would I want to spend time reading the Bible? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to do any of that when I look around at all these people who supposedly do, and the truth is they're not any better than me? When they look around and they go, they're not any more loving than I am. They're not any more peaceful than I am. They're not any more kind than I am. They don't care about the needs of other people any more than I do. And it seems like they do care about winning elections as much as I do, if not more. It seems like some of them are even more worried about winning the election than I am. So does it actually work? That's the question that I think people who are deconstructing are actually asking when they raise the banner of hypocrites, politics, and moral failures. So what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Where do I go from here with the time that I have left this morning? Well, I'll tell you, Part of me is torn because I actually want to talk to both groups. Like part of me wants to talk to the people who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Like I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to know what to do. I want to know like, what's the answer, John? I want to talk to that group. But I also want to talk to those of you who feel this frustration, who are deconstructing. I want to talk to those of you who, who are asking this question. When I look at all these people who claim to be followers of Jesus, does it actually matter? I have some thoughts for you too. So let me do this. I want to try to talk to both groups in the time that we have left this morning. And I'll just start with the Christians. Okay. So let me start there. Let me talk to my fellow followers of Jesus this morning and kind of address this, this frustration that people feel. Now, the first thing that I want, to, want you to hear me say is that I'm in this with you, right? Like, there's no element here of I'm going to say you should or come on you guys or what do you do? Like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm in the same boat, right? Like, I'm with you. I'm one of you. Like, this is an all skate kind of moment here. And so I just want to talk to all of us as a group, knowing that I'm part of the group as well. But if I was going to say anything to myself, and if I was going to say anything to those of you who maybe you, you like came ready to go, you want to dig deep and you want to feel challenged this morning as you leave as a follower of Jesus, I think if I could say anything to myself and to those of you who are like me in wanting to grow, this is what I, I think I would say to us. I would say we will never have the impact on the world around us that we want to have, that we hope to have, 
if we do not first show people around us with our lives how good life in the kingdom of God is, that we will never have the impact on the world around us that we hope to have, that we have been called to have, if we do not model first how good it is to live our lives in close relationship with Jesus. I would say that it will never be enough. It will never be enough for us to proclaim the goodness of Jesus with our words if our lives and our lifestyles do not support that reality and that claim as truth. And of course, that's the way that it is. This is what Jesus told us. Jesus was very direct with his followers about this. Jesus was crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Look at what Jesus said to his followers. Look at what he says to you and to me. Jesus says, listen, my followers. He said, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. It's this idea that our lives cannot be hidden. We are, as the church, we are a city built on a hill. People will see us. He said, you are the light of the world. You're a city built on a hill. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They don't light this bright light and hide it. He said, instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, here's the application, let your light shine before others that they may see your good, what? Deeds. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live in such a way that the rest of society sees our actions, that they look at our lifestyle. They see the way that we care for one another. They see the way that we carry one another's burdens. They see the way that we support one another and we pray for one another and we show up for one another. They see the way that, that we care for the, the least of these, the way that we care for the poor, for the marginalized, for the outcast. The rest of society, Jesus said, should see the way that you live, and it should cause them to be so thankful for your lifestyle that they glorify God in heaven. That's the calling that has been handed down to us by Jesus. That's the bar that he has invited us to live out. Let's be those people. Let's be the people that Jesus has created and called us to be. The reality is that there are so many people in our world that are hurting, that are searching, that are looking for answers, and we have the answer for them, but it will never be good enough for us to just tell them the answer. Here's what you should go and do, and here's what you should go and believe. No, we have to model it with the, with the goodness of our lives. And only after we have lived it out and they have seen the way that we live, after they have seen our good deeds, then the door will be opened for us to use our words and for us to tell them where that hope and where that joy and where that peace and where that patience comes from. But we have to live it out first. And when it comes to politics, listen, I get it. I love politics. I got my minor in politics because I just love it. I was like, maybe I'll you know, run for mayor someday. I don't know. But I, I love the political arena. I love the political conversation. I think the right to vote is an important right that is not universally enjoyed around the world. So we should take it seriously. 
I think that, that as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to make informed votes when we vote. We should dig into the issues. We should understand what's going to be on the ballot when I get into there, and I, and I know what I'm actually voting on. I think we should do our due diligence on the candidates, and what do they stand for, and what are they going to do? I think we should make informed votes, and then I think we should hold our elected officials accountable. I think there is nothing wrong with engaging in the civil arena and engaging in this dialogue. I think we can debate, and I think we can disagree. I think we can challenge one another. I think you can stump for your candidate, and you can try to raise money for the causes that are near and dear to your heart. I think you can do it all, but there is a way to do it that is glorifying to our God in heaven and that reflects the ways and the character and the nature of Jesus, or there is a way to do it like somebody who is not trying to live up to a higher standard. Let's do all of that in a way that glorifies God. Let's do all of that in a way that reflects the heart and the character of Jesus. I think Jesus' brother James gives us a lot of clarity when it comes to how we engage in the political arena. In James's letter, he writes that as followers of Jesus, we should all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. What if people looked at Christians and thought this about us? What if this was the reputation that we got when it came to the, our engagement in the political arena, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on? What if people looked at Christians and they thought, man, as a whole, they really care about our country. They really care about who wins the election. But you know what? They go into the ballot, they go into the polls voting really, really well informed. They know what they're talking about because they are so quick to listen. You know, Christians ask a lot of questions. They try to understand where me, even though I sit across the aisle from them, they try to understand where I'm coming from and why I feel the way that I feel and how my view was formed inside of me. They ask a lot of questions before they ever try to tell me why I'm wrong or what I need to think about or what I need to consider. And, you know, man, when it comes to politics, a lot of us get worked up pretty fast, but not Christians. Like, they're quick to listen, they're slow to speak, and they seem to be like they're slow to get angry. They don't seem to get too bothered by it all. I think that if we were doing that, it would, it would go a long way towards kind of pointing people to Jesus and answering the question, does it make any difference? And the reality is that some of us, maybe looking in the mirror here as well, some of us could probably relax a little bit when it comes to who wins the election because the truth is that we do not follow a temporary president. We follow an eternal king. And he sits on a throne and he is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. And nothing happens in this world that he is not in control over and that he doesn't have power over. And because we know in the end we win. We know that in the end, sin will be defeated and death will be overcome and we will live in the kingdom of heaven forever. So maybe we could put a little less stock in who wins the, the election or in the polls and we can show the world around us that it's going to be okay no matter who wins the election because we do not follow a president. We follow a king. He is a risen king and his name is King Jesus. So again, 
To those of you who, like me, are proud to be a follower of Jesus because it has made such a difference in your life, let's continue to push ourselves to live it out, not because we're trying to earn our salvation or earn God's favor, but simply because we are on display. We are a city on a hill. We are the light of the world. And God has given us the high calling of shining that light into the dark places. So let's do it well. And to those of you who are deconstructing and who are asking these questions, to those of you who might be struggling with the followers of Jesus, let me encourage you. Yes, it works. Yes, it matters. I know sometimes from a 30,000 foot view, you look down at the followers of Jesus as a whole, and it might seem like it makes no difference, that they're all the same as everybody else in the world. But that is not true. This place is filled with people from all walks of life, from all sides of the aisle, who have had their life radically transformed by the saving grace and love of their heavenly Father, and that's what they are here for, and that's what they want for you as well. And so if I could give you any encouragement today as you wrestle with the followers piece of this, I would simply encourage you, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. In your effort to distance yourself from some things that are not good, do not inadvertently also eliminate something that is valuable and important, namely, specifically, your opportunity to do life with your heavenly father, your opportunity to, to live this life with the God of the universe in you and with you, guiding you, leading you, speaking words of encouragement and life over you on a daily basis constantly, moment by moment, day by day. It is too good. It is too valuable. Do not throw it out with the bathwater. And for those of you who are followers, but you, you, you're tempted to like one foot in, one foot out, you're just not sure about all of this because you're getting distracted by all the politics and hypocrites and the moral failures, let me encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me encourage you to focus on Jesus, not the people who want to be like him. There are a lot of people who are trying to follow Jesus, who are genuinely trying to reflect his character and his nature. But no matter how good or bad they are, why would you focus on them when you can go to the source and fix your eyes on him? Like even the best among us will stumble and fall eventually the best among us will let you down. But, but of course they will. They're not Jesus. We don't follow them. That's why we don't follow any individual person. That's why God is not just another man. And so just like the, the author of Hebrews encourages us, let me read this from Hebrews 12. We're encouraged. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We live in a world where it is incredibly easy to get distracted by all the people all around us. What are they doing? What are they saying? What are they buying? What are they spending their money on? Who do they vote for? What are they up to? What do they post? Huh? You know, it's so easy, but God is going, come on, fix your eyes on me. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, the one who went to the cross for the joy set before him, who conquered sin and death on your behalf. Fix your eyes on him and don't get distracted by anyone else. If you do that, if you take just that with you from today, that will go a long way towards reconstructing your faith for the better. When I was a kid, my parents enrolled me in piano lessons, which I hated. Uh, I hated piano lessons because I wanted to be outside playing basketball, but instead I was inside sitting on a hard wooden bench trying to sit up straight, John. So I didn't love piano. Um, but as I learned to play just a little bit of piano, uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't want to play, you know, Mary had a little lamb. I want to like, can we just like get to something good? You know, and I remember telling my piano teacher, there's this Beethoven song that I heard that I really like. Could we work on that? And um, so in an effort, I think, to keep me a little longer, uh, we did. And uh, admittedly, I did not get very far with Beethoven, right? I don't know how to play the piano. But for the last 30 years, I have been, anytime I'm around a piano or a keyboard, I have been playing uh, this song by Beethoven for Elise. And again, I'm not good. Uh, I don't know a whole lot of it. But anytime I see a, a piano, I'm always, I come over and I'm like, you know, I start doing this. Now, uh, yeah, I have to clap. That's not, that's, it's the kid's version of Fur Elise. You find it on YouTube. But the real deal is so much better than that. So to give you a taste, in case you've never heard this song, I asked Blessing to play a minute and 30 seconds of the real deal. So Blessing, would you please play Beethoven for us? I love this part. And goes back, and that whole section repeats. <laughs> and it starts to get really good. Here comes the best part. Listen how fast this gets. Brings the full thing, or full, the whole thing full circle, comes back around. Isn't that beautiful? So good. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's my point. The fact that I cannot play for Elise very well does not in any way, shape, or form take away from the beauty of the actual composition, right? So it would be, it would be a tragedy 
for you to throw out for Elise and to think there's nothing to for Elise simply because I've done a poor job of presenting it to you. And in the same way, when it comes to our faith, it would be such a tragedy for you to throw away your faith in Jesus simply because some of his followers have done a poor job of presenting him to you. It's too good to let go of. It's too beautiful to not take hold of for yourself. It's too life-giving to live your life without it. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is so good. And people may do a poor job of presenting it to you, but I'm telling you, there is something there. It is worth it if you will continue to do the work and dig in and to go deep and to look past the people who are presenting him poorly and to fix your eyes on Jesus. It will make all the difference in your life. Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to understand, yeah, when we play it poorly, it doesn't take anything away from the song. But we should also be willing to acknowledge that if we all do a pretty bad job presenting the song, if that's the only glimpse of the song that anybody ever gets to hear, of course they're going to be less than impressed by it. Of course they're going to think there's nothing to it. So we have to play our part as well as we possibly can. We're a city on a hill. We're on display. And so we don't live differently because we're trying to like put you know, the best foot forward or we're trying to create this glossy image. No, nothing like that. But we do want to recognize that how we live matters. And so our prayer this year, our goal is that we would become even more like Jesus. Let's be those people. Let's be people who become even more like Jesus, who start to live even more like Jesus lived, who start to love even more like Jesus loved, who are filled with the peace and the grace and the patience and the kindness that Jesus was filled with. Let's be transformed more and more into the image of the Son. And let's do it together, cheering each other on as we go. There's a song that I asked the band to lead us in as we close that puts that prayer, that, that heart into words. So would you pray with me and then respond with this song? Lord, we recognize that our faith in you is a personal thing. And yet we also recognize that other people are watching us live our relationship with you. So God, would you help us to do a good job? Would you help us to represent you well? Would you help us to ultimately experience the realness of it ourselves? And then would what people see be the overflow of what you're doing in us and through us? And Lord, would it be glorifying as other people see it? Would our lives cause them to praise you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen.